0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. We must protect our borders from the ravages of other countries. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now.
2: Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. The show about the man whose chief strategist is telling the media to keep its mouth shut. Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. That's what Steve Bannon said in an interview yesterday. That the media should be embarrassed and humiliated and keep its mouth shut and just listen for a while. That the media is the opposition party. That they don't understand the country and that they still don't understand why Donald Trump is president of the United States. Earlier this week, I had a chance to talk to the media critic Jay Rosen about how the press should deal with this new administration. An administration that isn't just hostile to the press, but that has distinguished itself, after a week in office, by the brazenness and ubiquity of its lying. Later that night, after I talked to Jay on the show, I had a chance to talk with some other colleagues at an event hosted by New York University. We talked about whether we really are at war with Trump and what our duties as journalists are going forward. We're donating the profits from the ticket sales to the Committee to Protect Journalists, which is the most important organization defending the press from both physical dangers and from legal and political restrictions around the world. And so here's that conversation from earlier this week in NYU with CNN's Brian Stelter, The Huffington Post's Lydia Polgreen, Univision's Borja Echeverria, and The New Yorker's David Remnick. Uh,
3: good evening. Thank you, Jay. Uh, this is going to be a little bit of Reliable Sources, a little bit of Trump Trumpcast, <laughs> Jacob's podcast, a little bit of the New Yorker Radio Hour, uh, and hopefully a lot of you all as well uh, taking your questions and maybe... Figuring out some answers, uh, the question of how to cover Trump, and the broader questions that, that Jay was just talking about. So let's go down the the, the row here, real quick. Uh, David Remnick, editor of the New Yorker. Uh, <laughs> uh, next to him, uh, Borja Echevarria. Did I get it right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, VP and editor in chief, Univision Digital. came in from, Mi- from Miami for this. Uh, next to him, Jacob Weisberg, uh, of course, the TrumpCast host, chairman Thank of you. the Slate Group. And the brand new editor of the Huffington Post, Lydia Polgreen. Yeah. The hashtag is TrumpCast. And so we'll get started with a question about something our new president said on his first full day of office. Lydia, on uh, Saturday, Trump was at the CIA quarters. He said, with delight and with glee, he said, I'm in a running war with the media. He, he is the commander in chief responsible for sending troops into battle. And he's using the word war to describe what's happening with us. So if he's at war with the media, Lydia, does that mean you're at war with him? Is the Huffington Post at war with Donald Trump?
4: Well, we certainly don't want to be at war with the President of the United States. Um, however, uh, you know, it, it seems that one key aspect of Trump the candidate and now Trump the President is in the absence of having a monolithic base within his own chosen party, he he seems to feel the need to have um, a boogeyman, an enemy, someone to point to as the culprit, um, the, the the people who are getting in the way of making America great again, Um, you know, at one point it's immigrants at another point, it's Muslims. Um, and, uh, you know, as they say, it's not your fault, it's just your turn. Um, so, um, you know, I think that we are a very convenient, um, and, and I think we're a very convenient, um, uh, target. And I think that we need to think very hard about the things that we can do to make ourselves, um, armored against this, this notion that, you know, we're standing in front of Trump, and our, our weapons, if we are at war, are the traditional ones. They're, you know, dispassionate, fact-based reporting. Um, and... Is that enough? I, I, I think that's the question we're all asking ourselves. Is that enough?
3: David, are you on a war footing at the New
4: Yorker? <laughs> <laughs> Me? Mm-hmm. Um, look, I think the
1: job... Of journalism is the same now that it was six months ago. The job of journalism at its, at its at its highest is to put pressure on power. That's where that that that's the. There are many other things that can be included in a newspaper, a website, television, and all the rest. But the primary, indispensable job of the press is to put pressure on power, investigative pressure, intellectual pressure, all manner of. Um, fact-based, rigorous pressure. I don't even think it has to be dispassionate. I think it can be passionate as well. It, it can also be fair, um, but it has to be rigorous and fearless. And I have to tell you, so i uh, probably the oldest person on the stage. I do remember growing up when there was a criminal operation being run out of the White House. And when it was over, dozens of people went to jail. And history will record that that president, Richard Milhouse Nixon, was a criminal, pardoned by his successor. And a large role was played, a heroic role, a singular role was played by reporters, reporting. And not just Woodward and Bernstein, by commentators, by novelists, by all manner of what we call the media today. So, you know, I go into this knowing that it's, this is a, no, I don't think it's a normal presidency. I think it is a matter of record and even self-confession that Donald Trump is a flim-flam man, as a businessman. You just read his autobiography. He tells you that he lies. He says it in his, in his, in his autobiography. We know a spectacular amount about his life as a businessman, as a rhetorician, as a politician. And he won, sort of.
5: <laughs>
1: but he won enough to be occupying the Oval Office. So I think that there's a huge job to be done, and I don't think it's going to be done overnight. There are hours and seconds of the day where I don't know how this lasts. How long really lasts? his presidency. I don't know. And it may well go to full term. I don't know. But we have an enormous job to do. I've never felt a sense of uh, mission in quite the same uh, stark way as an individual and collectively with the people that I work with every day and, I, and I, my, with my colleagues elsewhere. When you cite Watergate, is the
3: difference now that the media was trusted then and is distrusted now? And as a result, the media doesn't have the same influence that it Correct. did then.
1: Well, I don't know. I, you know... <laughs> You, you make a point, but I don't know that the early reporting of Woodward and Bernstein was so trusted at all. In fact, most of the, uh, you know, to quote the movie, which I can probably recite in the middle of the night, uh, usually, <laughs> the rest of the country doesn't give a shit, Ben. That's, that's what was, it took months and months for these stories to accumulate and, and to have the impact they did and for other media outlets to, to chase them and to participate. I don't see that lack now. I see lots of media outlets, each in their own way, rigorously uh, reporting on Trump. I I think there's a myth that somehow, uh, you know, collectively the media ignored Trump's uh, many foibles, evils, lies, all the rest. The truth is it didn't penetrate for many reasons that we could talk about, quite the way that one would have thought.
3: Let me talk about Univision. So the New Yorker, the brand the New Yorker's identified in the name, and you know who the audience of the New Yorker is partly from the name. Univision is different, right, Borja? The, the, you're broadcasting to the whole country in, in Spanish, the dominant Spanish language network. What do you tell your audience right now? You know, David just ref- references the presidency mm. being not normal. Do you yeah. all take the same stand? Because that in yeah. and of itself is a, is a big judgment to make.
5: Yeah. Well, I think the the good thing about us, about Univision, is that we started talking to our audience, uh, I think, a year and a half. So when Jorge was expelled from a press conference, uh, in, that was August 2015, I mean, my feeling is that we already come from the future and many of the conversations that are happening now and the debates that are happening now, yeah. we had then and we took position a year and a half ago, no? So when didn't now that we... hurt
3: you, though? I mean, didn't your audience expect Clinton to win, and aren't they angry at you now?
5: If you, Excuse me?
3: Aren't some of your viewers angry at Univision now for making them think Clinton was going to win?
5: I mean, I don't have that, that feeling with our, with our audience, no? Maybe some Hispanics that not necessarily feel close to Univision. I mean, Univision has been the dominant player in the Hispanic media. That doesn't mean that 100% of the Hispanic feel close to Univision, no? There are parts of the Hispanic audience, maybe some of the Cubans in Miami, you know, that they feel kind of a revenge now. And Jorge spoke about this after the elections. He had the feeling, and maybe we all had the feeling that we, um, we overvalue uh, the vote of the Latinos, you, know, uh, you can remember Jorge said, "No one can get to the White House without the Latino vote, uh, and finally that didn 't happen uh, and the Latino vote I mean they moved pretty uh, pretty strong this time, much more than in previous in previous elections, but it was not enough and not, and not, uh, the, the calculation we did wrong, it was not that one is what we didn 't calculate, for example, in Florida that so many white people from the north of Florida were going to make Trump win the the elections, no? Uh, and I, I was talking to David before. I mean, I haven't seen anyone like Jorge creating some, an empathy with the audience. And I think that that hasn't changed, no? And, I, and for sure, we made mistakes during the coverage of the elections. But I think the sense of trust with uh, with our people and with the brand, it's not only as before, it's even bigger. I think our audience need us now more than ever. Uh, they are seeing that maybe we're talking about DACA and the Dreamers. Maybe they're going to... Uh, Trump is going to get uh, rid of the DACA. That's one million people. So they're... Uh, Calling us, telephone, Uh, our audience is getting bigger and bigger every day uh, on the newscast and on digital, so uh, there's a sense of need from our audience.
3: The the viewers are paying attention, readers are paying attention. Uh, Jacob, let me bring you in and and ask you about something that I think maybe is the fundamental issue, one one of the fundamental issues that was set up here. Uh, David, a couple minutes ago you said the job of journalists now is the same as it was six months ago, and I, I wonder if you agree, Jacob.
2: Well, I think I do, Brian. First, let me just say I want to um, deliver uh, regrets on behalf of Julia Turner, the editor of Slate, who would very much hope to be here on the panel with us but was feeling under the weather and thought she would be inaudibly raspy <laughs> if she was participating. Um, I think, I mean, tying in the, the, your, your first, first question to Lydia, too, um, Donald Trump is trying to make the media into what Jay Rosen calls a hate object. But he is, he wants to be at war with the media. He's really at war with the institutional role of the media, which is accountability. And that's the role the media has to insist on. And it's not, it has to be depersonalized in that that sense. But what the media, the the media's function is the same as it was six months ago or 60 years ago. It's to hold power accountable. What does that mean? It means, Exposing corruption. It means making sure public resources are used efficiently and effectively It make, means making sure power is not abused laws are not broken in the way w- it was during Watergate It means a lot of things But that is fundamentally what the media has to do in, re- in relation to power and right now in relation to the presidency it's particularly vexed and difficult for two reasons one, we have a president with authoritarian tendencies of a kind I don't think we've ever seen before, even in the Nixon era, although at the time, probably people would have felt it was very similar. Well, we're three days in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, give it time. And, uh, and the other is because uh, Congress, the legislative branch, seems to be so abdicating its role is a check on power. So, you know, the, the, the system of checks and balances depends on three branches of government. The judicial branch moves very, very slowly. Only Congress and the press, the, the, the fourth branch, can hold power accountable in real time. And that's where I th- the friction is, because I think Donald Trump doesn't want to be held accountable, and he is preemptively trying to prevent the press from fulfilling its role
4: but i mean just to jump in there um you know the thing that troubles me is that um you know by trying to make disreput- disreputable the institutions of the establishment and having this direct connection with his audience and discrediting us I-, I feel like our relationship with the audience is also fundamentally changing and that undermines our overall role um you know i i, I feel like you know, I was working at the New York Times before the election. And right after, um, right after the vote came down, we had a couple of stories about, um, you know, Trump's overseas dealings. And people said, Oh, if only you'd run these stories before. And, you know, I thought, my God, does anybody think that any single piece of journalism um, could have stopped Donald Trump from becoming president? Um, So so, does
3: anybody, by the way, does anybody think a single piece of journalism?
2: You mean one that didn't? Well, I mean, I think there's it's a still... a really interesting question. I mean, for example, if links were proven between his campaign and the Kremlin around the DNC hack, yeah, I think that would have stopped him. But then again, I was continually surprised by things that should have stopped him and didn't stop him. And partly it was because from, there was From day one. Yeah. From, from day, day one.
1: one. Remember, this was a campaign launched with a racist premise. Birtherism. Birtherism. Uh, so long ago, I wrote a inconsequential book about Barack Obama and I went on a radio station <laughs> and a guy calls uh, into the call-in station Milt Rosenberg is the station you're sitting there at 11 o'clock at night half falling asleep it goes on forever and ever and a guy calls in and he's from a publication called the American thinker which is a forerunner to some of the things that are now seemingly in the first row of the White House press room
5: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and he said you know you're a complete phony Everything you write from A to Z in this book is is absolute bullshit. Barack Obama did not write his first book. Bill Ayers wrote his book. Now, we think fake news was invented last week. Perfidy, lies, self-deception, illusion. These are all things that, that have a long, long history. What's changed? What's changed is technology. What's changed is delivery systems. And what's changed now is a masterful, masterful, peculiarly American demagogue. We've had demagogues throughout our history for well over two centuries, but no one's reached where this guy has. And you have to give him perverse credit for at least his talent, his seizure of, a, a, of currents in the American electorate. I don't mean just racist currents or misogynistic currents, but also uh, a fury created by deindustrialization, globalization, all the other factors we know. But he is masterful at this. I don't know that it lasts. I don't know that it's, it's, you know, look at the weekend. On Friday, we had a speech of blood and soil. Like none ever uh, preached from that pulpit. On Saturday, you had him at the CIA ranting and raving about the size of the crowds. And then his press secretary comes out and and, and begins to wage this war on the press. And it was just a day in office. A day in office. This is not a normal presidency. But I think the job, the principle, is the same. Pressure on power. Do I know that it will prevail? Do I know where that pressure will go? I don't. Uh, But I I think the press is, on on the one hand, filled with bravado in a certain way, in a sense of mission, good, but also filled with, in certain quarters, these cliches of, he must be given a chance, he is, after all, our president. You know, you turn on certain shows in the morning, and, you know, there's this eerie communication between the Oval (laughs) Office and the television studio. Uh, this 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 needs to be sussed out, explained, exploded,
4: examined.
3: But let me, I mean, let, me it, let me go back to Lydia. I didn't mean, to take away your point, Lydia, you were I thought your question was really interesting. But what you were saying was the relationship to the audience is fundamentally changing. In yeah
4: I mean I think that there 's just been a huge erosion of trust i mean to your original point of being at war, I think that we in the media have a tradition of kind of nonviolent resistance <laughs> um, you know we We stick to our nonviolent um, weapon of choice which is which is dispassionate reporting of fact and um you know i i I, I just think we all need to think about the effectiveness of that weapon in the in this context. Um I, I'm not suggesting that we dispense with those things, but I think we can't fool ourselves and think that 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 if we just behave the same, um if we that eventually uh truth will out. Um I, I'm not confident of that. And I think that is very much connected to the fact that that we have allowed ourselves to become discredited. Um, so As you're saying the job is not the
3: same, maybe we have well, to try something different.
4: I mean, look, you know, when the voter ID laws in, um, you know, a state change and the Democrats want to register voters, they need to not just get together vans and take people to the polls. They need to go door to door and make sure that people have identification, have proof of address, have to. So this is the metaphor that I've been sitting (laughs) with, right? That it's not even, I mean, it's almost like we need to rebuild media literacy in, um, in the United States because, because that, that trust has been so eroded Um, unless you just want to speak to your, to your fellow elites, um, you know, and and that's fine. And Um, that's my
3: concern about this. Uh, there's going to be some writers that are going to say this is a bunch of liberal media elites talking to each other. Jacob, I know you've thought since the election about how to reach new kinds of readers, new kinds of audiences... Uh, that, that may have been more
2: likely to vote for Trump. Is that right? Well, thought about it more than have been effective. On been, it. I mean, so you're saying the, it's been difficult. Well, I mean, I think you know we we are living in a media environment increasingly characterized by filter bubbles, by people self segregating according to their views of the world, even if they say they don't. And you know, there's a there's a Fox tribe and a and a CNN tribe and a Slate tribe and a New Yorker tribe, and you know, there's an overlap uh, between them and among them. Um, but fundamentally, people are, have gotten much better at hearing what they want to hear. And it's very hard to fight against that. I mean, when I started doing this podcast, which is now nearly a year ago, you know, it's supposed to end a few times, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's exhibiting this refusal to do that. Um, but, um, but part of my idea was I wanted to talk to Trump supporters. Hmm. I wanted to find intelligent Trump supporters who would not just repeat talking points they had heard on Fox, but kind of give me their real reasons. And, and, and I got a few and there, you know, there were, there were a few interesting people who had, who surprised me with their reasons for supporting Trump. You know, the, some people were highly idiosyncratic and I liked that. And there was even one guy I talked around who came on my show three times. And by the end of it, he said he couldn't vote for Trump, but he wasn't, he wasn't sure he, was, he wasn't going to vote for Hillary, but he said he wasn't going to vote for Trump. Um, but, um, you know, there's not much, there's not much over, overlap. And it's particularly confounding for a place like Slate. I mean, what Slate likes to be doing is telling people, challenging people's received opinions and saying, you know, you're right for the wrong reasons or you're wrong. You know, <laughs> and we, we like to, we like oh, to we be... Know. We like we You know, the Slate pitch, right? We, we like to it. be surprising and challenging. Now, there's not much room to do that right now. I mean, there's not... You know the, the contrarian view of 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 Trump is, is kind of we're not we're not anywhere near that. You can't contemplate that right now. You know we're we're talking about f- uh, fundamentals. Um, so I think in that sense it's hard if you're trying to occupy some island other than the Fox News island of of, of state media or the. Do you the, mean that
3: you think Fox News is state TV now?
2: I think it's absolutely trending in that direction and you know uh, Trump has exhibited such glee in the driving away from Fox even of the sort of slightly recalcitrant conservatives I mean Megyn Kelly you know was his enemy because she was while she seems to have largely conservative politics and was very good at what she did on Fox she was a little too independent for him Hmm. now that she's gone it's more Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly land. And that does seem, and you know, Rupert Murdoch seems pretty on board. I mean, we'll see how it plays out. But I think Fox has some real journalists. And I think it has some propagandists. And right now, it looks to me like the propagandists are getting the upper hand.
3: Well, partly this is about defining our terms, right? And I think that's something that Jay, Jay Rosen would say. The, the, the media includes Infowars and the New York Times. It includes Hannity uh, and the AP and I think for purposes of this discussion, we're talking about the news media journalists who are trying uh, to play it straight, whatever that means right now. Uh, however, I wonder if that gets back to your point about media literacy, that people are awash in this environment where all of that is mixed together. So much opinion and so much uh, just noise, for lack of a better word, uh, that it all blends together
4: and folks don't trust any of it. No, I think that's that's absolutely right. I mean... You know, I I remember, you know, discussions at the Times about, you know, how important it was that we preserve the ragged right on a news analysis um, in print. (laughs) So then the reader would know that this was a piece of news analysis. And I think, my God, (laughs) do you think anybody's paying attention? Um, You know, and and this we're talking about print subscribers of the New York Times. Uh, You know, there's just so much garbage out there, so much that's just flying by and, you know penetrating into people's consciousness. Um, and and I, I just think amid all that noise it's very easy for, for anything, you know, for anything goes. I
3: continue to wonder where are the startups, where are the new kinds of newsrooms, what are the new journalistic forms and tools and sites that should be
4: created as a result of a Trump presidency. And I don't see enough innovation yet. I don't think that it's a, it's a technological problem. I mean, I think no, I, yeah. yeah, I think that it's, it's, it's... Well, anyway, David, well, you well, go ahead. Let me ahead. say it this way. What about the casual reader
3: who has no idea about the history of voter fraud in this country or attempts to suppress the vote, who's hearing about it today for the first time, who's confused and kind of
4: scared? I don't think that person has a place to go to understand what the heck's going on. I mean, I would say that... I mean, this again comes back to the question of um of, of media literacy, but I think it goes back even further than that, which is a sense of, you know, common interest and a sense of we're all in this together. Um, and the kind of empathy that drives great great journalism about people. Um, I think, you know, the investigative reporting that we talked about is extremely important. Um, But I I think a lot about, you know, the people who voted for Obama in 2012 and then voted for Trump in 2016. What does their information diet look like? You know, is there anybody who's out there creating a journalistic product that speaks in a clear and empathic way to a low-information voter who's not a bigot, who's not a, you know, I mean, this job just a busy person who doesn't you know. and and who's you know who who's like you know look the big trends are clear you know globalization hasn't worked out how we thought and people feel the pain of that technological progress was supposed to make, you know, life utopian, um, everyone more productivity and blah, blah, blah. My generation is the last, um, that will, has a better than 50% chance of earning more than his parents. I mean, things are, you know, feel bleak out there to people, you know, this sense of, of, of never ending promise. So, I mean, I do think that there is something to the idea of journalism responding in a very authentic way to people's lived experiences. And, I don't think that the, that, the, that the answer to that is a, a, a fact-check bot, you know. I don't think the answer to that is, you know, a cool explanatory video, you know. I think, I think the answer to that is, is, is fundamentally changing the tone and tenor with which we do journalism about people's lives um, and trying to rediscover some of that sense of empathy. Um.
5: I think coming from, from another country... Uh, like mine but also having had a strong relation with latin america i think the level of pessimism of self-critic that i'm hearing and i have been hearing the last months <laughs> i mean i see al a level of creativity in this country of a capacity of innovation of changing things uh, the conversation this is an ongoing conversation that it has been here for the last 3 months what we did wrong uh, I recently went to to Colombia to talk to the editors about uh, what happened with the with the peace and referendum mm. and I saw zero capacity of self critique that it's a completely different experience here, no? So uh, I think there is there are reasons for optimism here. Uh, what I think that it would be good for the journalists that work here and for everybody is to look a little bit outside, to look at the experience from other countries and some of the, the uh, people we are here, we have been uh, correspondents in other countries, uh, and if we, uh, in the last weeks, I've been talking a lot to people in my newsroom, most of them, they come from Venezuela, from Ecuador, from Argentina, and for them, this is not the first time they have seen this so let's use that as a tease
3: actually we want Mm -hmm. to get to that next david do you have one more thought uh yeah i think we need
5: to buck up
1: buck (laughs) up i think we need to buck up in the sense that yeah the conversation about technologies and delivery systems and new bottles is interesting and even important i really do twitter um facebook and the nineteen new things that are newer than that are all interesting, <laughs> and and vital. And you know, you are pitifully behind if you do not ab- adapt to these these uh, technologies. Whether you're in legacy media, uh, as the brand goes on the back of uh, uh, even even Slate is probably considered legacy media at this We're point. In or, in or or Post, We're right. in between. We're in between. you you're a, you're, mm-hmm. a, you're a tweener. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But this discussion, to me. With all due respect, is somewhat secondary. I think some of this discussion is we need to buck up and do our work <laughs> and do it ferociously and fearlessly and not be freaked out by a press secretary's performance at the podium on Saturday. Hmm. Stop it.
3: You thought people were freaked I, out. You
1: know, I I I lived for four years in the Soviet Union, and then as I was leaving, it collapsed. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) And for about 10 years, 8, 10 years, there was a free-ish press, owned by oligarchs, incredibly corrupt, but free-ish after a millennium of unfreedom, of the most ferocious kind, that had all kinds of contorting effects on the psychology and history of the Russian people and and, and the Soviet imperium. That's a horror show. We've had 4 days of this. Uh-huh. And we need to look at it squarely and whether you're at Huffington Post or or Snapchat or or Univision or or wherever you are. You need to do your work constantly and get out of bed earlier and work harder and write stories of all kinds. Jay Rosen's right. You know, I recommend you read his 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 list of principles. Uh, about the way the press should proceed. I got a lot out of them, and, and, and thank you to him for, for that kick in the ass. Which is, it's that, co- I, I almost feel the problem is spiritual, not technological.
3: Spiritual.
1: Well, yeah, it's in your inner spirit. If you're not waking up as a journalist right now and thinking, this is the time, like never before, to do your work ferociously and honestly, and fearlessly, and know that the, as down as you may feel, in so many ways, that there is wind at your back. I mean, look at what happened over the weekend. Uh, You know, how many hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people were out on the street? Now, they weren't out there in unified celebration of the New York Times and the Washington Post, I understand that. (laughs) But they were saying something to that person in the White House. They were saying that we are not gonna lay down. Now I don't, this is a divided country, this is, but this is not the election of a conservative as opposed to a liberal, or a Democrat, or as opposed to a Republican. Something else is afoot. Somebody with an assertive, authoritarian, demagogic style has come to power. And if you aren't energized by that prospect as a journalist, you should become a certified public accountant.
4: <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I've heard the, the word it's
3: authoritarian it's twice. Yeah. So let's talk about the rest of the world and what can be learned from other countries. I heard you both yeah. starting to yeah. speak. So oh. Lydia. Uh,
4: well, I mean, I you know, I think um, I, I recommend you all uh, read a piece uh, written by a friend of mine, uh, Nick Dawes, who's the um, uh, um, works at Human Rights Watch and uh, formerly was an editor in. Um, in uh, in South Africa and India, and had some very wise words for American journalists based on his experiences uh, dealing with um, you know kind of velvet ish gloves, maybe burlap glove um, uh, strongmen. You know both Jacob Zuma and um, and and Narendra Modi. Um, and and I think that that for me the, the one of the really important takeaways that he had was that um, journalistic institutions shouldn't try to take these things on alone. Um, you know, we, we have this kind of like resistance to working together. We compete, um, you know, broadcast does this and print thinks they're too good for everybody. And, um, you know, the digital upstarts are too busy making, um, gifts. Um, so, but I, but I do think that there's, there is like a tremendous need for solidarity among all of us and to take really firm stands, um, uh, on what aspect? Well, I mean, I think on, on, on you know, like, refu- <laughs> you know, maybe we shouldn't be going to, um, to the White House briefing room. I mean, maybe Jay's right that we should <laughs> send the interns. Um, I mean, I think one really telling moment will be the White House correspondence dinner. What's going to happen? Call,
2: call that thing off. Call that I thing know off. you've said that, Jacob. Yeah. The Hilton's
3: already booked. There's already a contract. Well,
2: I, I won't be there. We got to have a. Uh,
3: someone's got to have a party.
4: I'm. I, I, I mean, mean I the don't... idea
2: <laughs> that, that you know that that if, that faced with these attacks on our doing our job, we're going to invite this guy to come and mock us in person. It's just abhorrent, and that we're going to use it as a, as an opportunity to rub elbows with all the all the revolting people around him. Does anybody I mean... up here
1: want to
3: defend mm-hmm. uh, the dinner? No. Mm-hmm. Okay. One second. Uh, but, what um, about the idea yeah. of
5: solidarity? I mean organizing several things I think the way to come together with thought and I agree totally with what Lydia was mentioning I think it can be also in, in the sense of reporting together. No, and, and us, for example, Univision. I mean, we don't have the capacity to go mainstream totally in the country, but we have some things that all the uh, media they don't have because we have access to our audience. No, so we mm. go, uh, recently we got together with Propublica and, mm-hmm. and with all the media, and we're we created a project that is called Documenting Hate, uh, and we can go to places where Propublica can not go and speak to that audience. So I think there is a way. Of reporting, and that 's another kind of solidarity that we are not used to do and and more and more we have to do those kind of things from the lessons from those countries, like I said before yeah, Venezuela, yeah. ecuador um, I think we have to frame in a different way the idea that there is a war between trump and and media, or that 's what he wants to to make it look like. I think we have to explain to our audience, to the people, that this is not about media. This is about freedom of information, freedom of speech, access to information, and we have to find ways of explaining that to our audience. It's not about us, it's about all of us.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a global... Mm-hmm.
5: <laughs> Agreed. Um, there's a
2: global story here. You know, 10 years ago, the world was, I think you could argue, still getting more democratic. Civil society was getting stronger. And as part of that, in many of the largest and most influential countries in the world, a freer, more independent press was emerging. In China, it was never good, but it was getting better. In Turkey, it was getting better. In India, it was getting better. There were hopeful signs in a lot of places. Even in Iran, you could see, you know, maybe not much movement, but the direction is probably positive. In the past several years, it has gone dramatically in the other direction. And in the largest and most important countries in the world, which also serve as models for parts of the world in the way the United States used to, uh, Russia, China, uh, Turkey, India... The, the free press is losing ground as part of the erosion of civil society and the reverse progress of democracy. And I think it's important that we look at those countries in a very specific way and says, and, and, and ask, what happened there? Could that happen here? How do we prevent those things happening here? And when it comes to the role of the press, you know, I think you see very specific things in Venezuela and Turkey, the freedoms that the press Lost, you know, and you have uh, phenomena like leaders filing lawsuits against journalists. You have restrictions and actual laws on press freedom. You have big questions about ownership and control of media. So independent media sort of disappears without necessarily any of the bylines in the newspaper changing or the faces on TV changing. And those are the things I think we have to be watching really closely because those are the hazards. I I think absolutely. The first
1: thing that Vladimir Putin did, the very really first effective thing he did was to close down NTV – which was the, again, a flawed, but, but by Russian standards, unprecedented in its independence, uh, would report on things like corruption and, and abuses in the war in Chechnya and the rest. He did that. And that was a signal to every oligarch, get out of the media business. Get out of the media business. And right now, the level of political discussion on Russian television in particular, print data... <laughs> Forgive me. They don't give a shit about uh, the internet. They semi leave alone. I mean, you can have a news diet in Russia, mm. but you have to assertively go after it. Let's face it: television is 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 dominant, particularly in a country that big, and distribution problems uh, for 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 print certainly collapsed. You may not criticize Vladimir Putin on television. Period. There is an a a blacklist of people who may not appear on television. And if you criticize the president, you will end up in all kinds of uh, jeopardy. And so the stakes of what we do, the stakes of our work, the stakes of how we behave, the signals that we send to the rest of the world, I I know this sounds incredibly corny, and maybe impermissibly so, uh, at any time but I really feel this way it is absolutely essential absolutely essential that we behave uh, with, with absolute fearlessness I, and, I, and it, 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 is, it is a constitutional, national and moral necessity that we do so which makes you feel puffed up a little bit but <laughs> if that's what gets you out of the chair in the morning then, then, then go for it, you need to do that because I see a lot of demoralized people around
4: I do too I, I think that another sort of peril um is is a much more kind of hidden one. Um, you know, in South Africa one of the largest media groups was was bought out and basically gutted by a um a, you know, crony of the president. Um and uh you know just seeing what happened with you know Peter Thiel and Gawker, um, you know in India you have an army of trolls that come after you know sort of pro Modi trolls that come after mm-hmm. any journalist that try. So I, I think it's not just about you know these kind of iron fist. I'm going to go and force this paper out of business. Um, you know there are some very very wealthy people um, besides Donald Trump associated with his administration, um, and um, you know I've always felt that the um, one of the great underwriters of the freedom of the press is the fact that it, in the United States is the fact that we're going concerns. We make money, we earn our keep, um, mm-hmm. and that keeps us um, independent. But, but, uh, there are signs to be encouraged. For example, I, with all due respect, I thought CNN
1: oh, earlier. I hate in a th-
3: sentence that starts that way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I thought CNN earlier in the campaign was way too permissive in letting Donald Trump just sweep the airwaves. <laughs> yeah. And they did it for a reason that, you know, it was quote-unquote good television. And hours and hours of this stuff. And it had, it had an enormous effect. Now I see something quite different. I see CNN taking its cue from headlines in the New York Times and calling, um, calling things what they are. Far more often, this is a lie, this is an untruth, um, this is an encouraging thing. All at a time. It should be pointed out all at a time when CNN is part of a corporation that has a deal in progress that the president can't just press a button and, and, and stifle, but can go an awfully far way in doing so. And so, I, you know, you have to look in that direction. It's that kind of behavior. If, in fact, that's what CNN's is going to do, and I hope it will, uh, because it's enormously um, influential and enormously irritating to Donald Trump, who watches CNN, I think, endlessly. <laughs> From what I understand, Donald Trump in meetings, and I have this pretty reliably, there's always a television on, and while he's being briefed on this, that, and the other thing, he is watching himself on television. <laughs> there's also the infantile aspect of this presidency that's disturbing and, ha- and makes a difference. So I, I, it's that relationship between um, not only how journalists behave But you know our uh, you know uber mention our you know the the people above us the owners the owners Yeah, what they do how they behave do they stand up? or do they kind of quietly? Shrivel
3: it's a moment to pay attention to media ownership for sure damn right And It's not just because of that merger at CNN. It is very clear the White House is watching Let's let's just put it that way not just Trump, but it includes Trump. Uh, Let's talk about the um, the, the You don't want to talk about CNN more <laughs> I'm, happy, I'm happy to take questions. Uh, I was I was actually quite. I'll tell a brief example of this, and then it could get to Jay's point in the introduction about this broader reality-based community problem. Uh, Sunday, alternative facts enters the lexicon. The banner on the bottom of my program at 11:30 said, "Alternative facts. Are they really facts?" And, and this is this is what happens. So this this soundbite's a minute long. I see the banner and I say,
2: "Oh."
3: <laughs> we got a problem. I'm going to be trolled on Twitter for this. Uh, email the control room. They're lies! Exclamation point. Not thinking we were going to change the banner, but thankfully, 30 seconds later, the banner says, alternative facts are lies. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think there's something about... And, the, 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 you know, the applause should be for my control room. The, the, the idea that even through banners, even through the questions that are being asked on the air, uh, that the coverage can make a difference. It's something I'm seeing across TV not just on CNN but that brings us to alternative facts it brings us to this larger sense that truth is being fought and there's a war on truth Uh, what are we what are we to make of (laughs) of what Kellyanne Conway said anyone have any insight into whether this is um, this is a a, this is a first step toward uh, toward the kind of authoritarian behavior we've seen elsewhere well, not too much, been made of alternative
4: facts. 1984 is now the number one bestseller on Amazon, so make of that
3: what you will. Oh, I, I, I wrestle with this. A Part of me thinks she was just trying to get out of an awkward situation. The other part of me thinks it was no. symbolic of the mindset no. of the administration. No, no right, it's so,
1: completely and right utterly consistent of the behavior of the press operation and the, and the Trump campaign. That piece of linguistic refuse... Was com- <laughs> completely and utterly consistent with the thinking and behavior of the candidate and the president of the United States. Unfortunately, there's a reason this book is selling so well. It's perfectly encapsulates, you know, the 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 psychology and the mass uh, uh, psychology that can that can uh, that can swallow a people through this kind of, you know, Ministry of Information behavior. Are we there yet? No. Uh, Let's just remember it is four days in. We are (laughs) sitting here up in a stage. We are not passing around dot. We are not um, in a jail cell or a courtroom. Tomorrow morning I'm going to go to my office and I'm going to type and talk to writers and people on the web and all all the the radio and all the rest. The freedom is there. I just want to be able to look back and be proud that I used it to its maximum because it's an incredible privilege. We have to do that.
2: I was going to say, you know, you you know Russian, David. I don't, but but I have the sense that their vocabulary is much richer in uh, terms for official deceit. And, you know, this is, I mean, alternative facts is a rough translation of disinformation which is a russian term right disinformation disinformatio. and disinformation is not misinformation disinformation is not inaccurate information Correct. it is it it is it is it is false propaganda fraud, fraudulent news which is what fake news is but intended not necessarily to convince people that the fraudulent story is 100% true it has its effect, full effect if it merely creates enough doubt that people throw up their hands and say, I don't know what's true. I can't know what's true. He's saying this. She's saying that. And right. that's what Kellyanne Conway was trying to do. And that goes to the heart, I think, of the strategy of the, the Trump administration. It's not that he necessarily, to, to, to win, he doesn't have to convince people that Obama's birth certificate was fake or that, you know, out. Ted Cruz's father was part of the Kennedy assassination. Or, you know, any of the other things that he said that almost certainly he at some level does not believe. He just has to divert people with a debate about it that results in, or, in people. Or, and,
1: yeah. and the refuse, the garbage that he leaves behind, the psychological garbage that he leaves behind is incredible. He eventually came around to saying, all right, you know, maybe it was wrong. But what's the percentage of Republican voters who believe to this day in birtherism? I, I, I don't know the number. And I, Do they you know. believe in birtherism
3: or do they use birtherism as a way to get under the former president's skin? Do you think they truly believe birtherism?
2: It's just a metaphor for racism. <laughs> I mean, that's sort of the that, defense. That's the question. The, the, with you know, with voter
3: the, fraud, three to five million illegal votes didn't happen. Does he really think that three to five million people illegally voted or does he just feel... Something, you know, is there something related to that? Is it a, is it a symbol and, of launch an right. and launch an
1: investigation. And launch an investigation.
2: I mean, I think in a way, maybe I, I'm curious if Borja thinks about this. I think that's a metaphor for racism too because I think that's saying, he's saying specifically, of course, of course. these
4: are It's not even a metaphor. These are Latinos. <laughs> <laughs> these, what? I said it's not, <laughs> not even a metaphor. <laughs> right. but. Sean Spicer. Uh, tr- uh, what not she Sean. said. Trump, yeah. Trump <laughs> did
3: say today that he's sure that all the illegal votes were for the other person. That's what he said to ABC. So let's, let's get your take.
5: No, yeah, I mean, and, and it happens with, with the wall, no? That's exactly the same metaphor, no? I mean, is he going to build a wall in Mexico? And that's what many people don't know. There is already a wall in Mexico, that separates <laughs> the United States from Mexico. <laughs> uh, and and he will be repeating and repeating, he has been repeating this, and maybe he's gonna build I don't know how many more kilometers, but it's not gonna change anything, no? But their metaphor that that they have a real impact in, in the life of the people, no? And and in our specific audience there is right now there is panic and that's the, the reality, no? They hear about a war, they don't know if they're going to take them away of the country. They will never come back. They are gonna, the kids are going to stay he- here. The parents are going to go away. So, uh, I mean, I think we have to be very careful with, with uh, these metaphors.
3: We're getting to the really fun part, which is your all's questions. There's two microphones, one on each side. Uh, so please line up at the mics. Let me ask this question to all of you. Do any of you worry about, for lack of a better phrase, outrage fatigue? That uh, every day the news coverage feels like it's at 11? And the folks are going to tune it out. Anybody concerned about that?
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm worried about becoming tedious. And, you know, it's, it, it's tedious to be outraged all the time. It's hard to maintain. And it's not a good, spiritually, it's not a good, it's not a good state of mind. You have to be able to calibrate. You have to be able to kind of take breaks from it. Because you can't be, you can't have the dial turned up all the way all the time. So I think that's a real problem. But cutting against that is something David said. This is a great time to be a journalist. Because if you're a journalist, you wake up and you know what your job is. You know what you have to do. Mm-hmm. I think if you're not a journalist, it's a lot harder because you want you want to fight you want to fight these encroachments too. But it's not you know it's not clear what you do. Do you run for office? Do you go to a demonstration? I mean, there, there's an infinite range of possibilities. But if your job is to write stories, do inv- investigations, and tell the truth, that's. We know how to do that. That's what we do. And you, you wake up with a strong sense of purpose around that.
4: Yeah, I, I feel very lucky um, because, you know, my my friends and family who are not journalists feel really powerless right now. I mean, I think they go to the march. Mm. They, you know, whatever it is, um, you know, they do. And I, I feel like. I mean, I lead a newsroom that's filled with very young people who are extremely idealistic. And it's really inspiring to see how fired up they are. Um, and, um, you know, that I think is, is, is what I see across the board. I don't know what's happening in your newsroom. But, um, you know, we'll see. Time will tell. Um, you know, this is, as we keep saying, day four. <laughs>
1: I, I, think he's, I think Donald Trump is counting on exhaustion. I think Donald Trump is... Counting on exhaustion, interesting. Yeah, I think he's counting on this kind of uh, umbrage burning itself out after a while, and that it tamps down and it normalizes, and and everybody goes home and goes about their business, and we blink, and... Let me just say this. I, I think the Constitution is a great gift of Enlightenment philosophy, despite its enormous flaws that we all know from the 18th century, but it's, everything is fragile. Magazines are fragile. Television stations are fragile. NYU may not last until the 400th century, who knows? And it is our, it, it, it's demanded of us to vouchsafe that which is valuable, invaluable. And constitutional, look, he's a conservative president in one way, a peculiar conservative president. I don't like that because of my own politics, but we've been through this before. This is something else. This is somebody who within four days has begun to challenge constitutional and democratic norms. That isn't politics, that's an emergency. So I don't don't think that it's... um, to, to, to after four days say, well, you know, we have outrage. And, you know, David Brooks this morning in, a, in his column, you know, <laughs> I, you know, scolded the demonstrators for, for not demonstrating for the right thing. <laughs> All due respect to David Brooks, it, 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 it is interesting that people that mo- are hardest on identity politics are white men. <laughs> and, and hundreds of thousands of, not just women, but all kinds of people and from all, all corners of life came out to express themselves in all kinds of ways, and in, in a re, it, with a real sense of outrage and a desire to vouchsafe and protect what is uh, dear to them, whether it, it, it's um, civil rights, human rights, um, abortion rights, which are inscribed in our law until otherwise notified, you know, so I, I think that kind of scolding and and everybody saying, calm right. down, I'm wary of that.
3: To be clear, you're saying d- democracy is, val- is fragile, the Constitution is fragile. I know it's fragile. fragile. I've lived through it elsewhere. Does that mean in a war against the media that the media could lose? Yes. That it of is course. existential,
1: this moment. Read a history book. <laughs> I'm, just
3: to, I'm just trying to frame the stakes here. Because no, 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 Brian, I don't, I don't, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not
1: dissing you. I'm just saying... Yeah. That, you know, live long enough, read enough, yeah. see enough, keep your eyes open. Things are fragile. Mm-hmm. Whether they're frag- it's a fragile diplomatic piece, it's if, whether it's an institution or it's a freedom that we've come to, to be both accustomed to and love. Yes, I don't think this is just my natural temperament, which is pessimistic enough. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's a fact of history. And Americans can be oblivious. Oblivious. We could never be attacked, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It, 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 this, is, um, this is an emergency.
3: Oblivious, but not our crowd. Let's go out to the crowd. Let's go to the audience. First question, tell us your name.
6: Okay, I'm Marilyn Gunner, and I'm a member of the totally, completely hysterical crowd.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so um,
6: so what, do I, what, what might I need from you as is, is I'm looking at the first four days of coverage? And one thing I wondered is if we could take some of the most of the fake news and the tweets and put it into an entertainment section so that because right now there are things that are chaff being sent up and then there's real things that are happening and i want to see on the front page the real things so i know what to react to and the chaff i'd love to mm. see in an entertainment section <laughs> I mean, I'd also... The other thing, I know Slate did this a little bit, is what is going on in the right-wing press today? I don't want to go out and read it, but it would be nice.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah. if, By the if way, you should. i you to... You, I, I, yeah. you could filter it for and me? And it, yeah. <laughs> we do have a handy the, summary. The, the, I can recommend were, that.
1: You know what's two, interesting, though, uh, about that? I so I went on um, Fareed Zakaria's show, and I said, so who's going to be on? And he said, well, somebody from the Clinton campaign... And uh, Nira Tandon and Dan Seener, who's a kind of Romney Republican, and I said, "So who's the Trump person?" And he said, "Well, I, I got to tell you, it's a problem because the Republican intelligentsia was not pro-Trump. I mean, there were this this patch of people at you know Claremont McKenna or you know this this, this that and the other, but but the the." conservative intelligentsia, think what you will about it, whether it's the National Review or or wherever, really did not come out in force for him. So I go on the program, and who's there? It's Conrad Black. Conrad Black, who's not allowed to leave Canada, or he'll get arrested again and go to jail. And he gets on television, and he starts talking about how Trump, there was no racist campaign, no misogynist uh, element to his campaign, And it was like living in, you know, uh, the yellow submarine.
2: When your spokesman's wearing an ankle bracelet, it's never a good sign. Yeah,
1: Now, but on the other hand, I I don't think you can just then be dismissive. And you have to realize 60 odd million people voted for Donald Trump. And part of our jobs up here, too, is to get our shit together and know why. And understand differences among those voters and not brand them all with the same... And see
6: what they're reading. Right. Yeah, partly.
1: Let's go back and forth here and get some more questions. Hi, I'm Bob Berkowitz. I was a White House correspondent for CNN in the early 80s. In my day, if a reporter like Jim Acosta was blackballed by the president elect of the United States, there would have been outrage by the likes of Sam Donaldson and Leslie Stahl and people like that. And I hope to believe myself nobody said anything, they just went to the next question. You're talking about standing up to Trump. They wouldn't even stand up for their colleague. These are a bunch of wimps.
2: I I will say I think the press needs solidarity and unity on institutional issues like that, what they're allowed to do to reporters. And I think there's been some real weakness. I mean, I watched the... The, Sean Spicer's first press conference on Monday after he had lied in the most outrageous way in a public statement from the, from the briefing podium on Saturday. And I thought reporters were going to stand up and demand an apology and ask him if he was going to resign and say they weren't going to talk about anything else until he acknowledged lying to them and, and breaking the, the, the fundamental bond of trust around that institution. They didn't, they didn't do anything. They didn't do anything, and they're and they're all. Everyone's trying to get their question in, and everyone everyone's sort of operating independently. So I, I, I totally agree with you, but it's very hard to do. But I think the I think the press has to. There should be a lot of kind of meetings and dinners right now where they agree to some kind of ground rules about sticking up for each other. Yeah.
4: Uh, but is that, I mean, that's part, not collusion. Part of, the, part of the part of the I mean part of the discussion here is that like. For all of us, you know, Trump is good for business. Right. I mean, you know, it's it's it's, you know, produces great copy. It produces great television. You know, viewership numbers are up. um, You know, uh, The New York Times, The New Yorker, others have seen a huge boom in subscriptions. Um, So, you know, it it sounds crass. But I mean, I think that that that, you know, reporters jockeying in that um, briefing room are in part, you know, kind of. The show must go on. The show must go on.
1: When I was a young reporter, I was a sports reporter, and you'd go into a locker room, and sooner or later, maybe you've had this experience too, sooner or later you'd run into an abusive coach, and you'd be in a clutch with 15 people, and some timorous soul would ask a a, a brave question. And then the, the coach would get abusive at that reporter. It was very rare, I'm afraid to say that those other reporters would, would show a sense of solidarity. There is this mm. chicken-hearted sense that we have to come to this room every day and we have to kind of talk to the press secretary every day and God forbid we get in his or her face, we're gonna get, and this is the worst thing that can happen to you in the White House press room or the Boston Celtics locker room, I'm gonna get shut out. And my feeling is no great stories come from a press room. Exactly. Ever.
4: Exactly. Let's go. I mean, you know, I think
1: a big organization has to show up. I, you know, I, I think it's a great applause line. We shouldn't go. But, you know, if you're a big... Yeah, somebody's got to go. Send but that isn't, but Send that isn't, that isn't where, that isn't where uh, Watergate was found or Abu Ghraib was found or anything of, of, of yeah, earth-shattering importance.
5: Yeah, and there is a risk that in the next months, if we don't see that kind of solidarity, I think the next step is we're going to start listening to nonsense questions in the White House because people are not going to dare to ask a question and you're going to be pointed. So that's the next step if we don't do something. And we should do it right now, immediately, because if it's not, it's going to get worse and worse.
3: First question yesterday was Life Z. First question today was the Washington Examiner. Let's go over here.
7: Hey, uh, thanks for taking my question. Washington my Times. My, my name is uh, Mike Parenti and I'm obsessed with news. Uh, we love you. Bless too. you. Yeah. So's uh, so Brian. My yeah. question's <laughs> related to something that occurred like a week or a week and a half ago, but it feels like it could be a year ago now with what's happened in the past three days. Um, it's related to BuzzFeed's leak four, of the dossier. I think four, counting. Yeah. It's the, dossi- <laughs> the 35-page dossier leak. Um, this is something I follow a lot of journalists on Twitter, and when, th- when this was leaked, this conversation really blew up um, for, I don't know, for a couple days. And my observation is that it should not have been leaked and it was a gift to the Trump administration to use to support his war on the media. And I guess there's an uh, there's a wide breadth of media that's out there and there's like the CBS's, the New Yorkers, and then there's these new guys like Buzzfeed who are still learning and still messing up, I would say. Um, and I guess my question is is how do you, uh, stop this from occurring again or what are the, the learnings from this um, and what was the impact in your newsrooms, in your offices and <laughs> wh- what do you guys think about that? Uh,
5: I, I wouldn't say that BuzzFeed is learning. I think they have done quite amazing reporting during the, the I elections. Agree with that. I mean they they broke they broke uh, the story of the fake news, for example. And for me, it wouldn't be surprising seeing BuzzFeed winning a Pulitzer yeah. Prize in a couple of years. I would not years. condescend
1: to bu- BuzzFeed at all. I, it's, it's way too easy to do because if you go on the homepage, there's 24 ways you can
5: yeah.
1: interior <laughs> decorate your lips or whatever it is.
5: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so they do a variety of things. They do a variety of things. You know, I, I was... Lucky enough to cover the Obama campaign at the very, very end, and they were obsessed with one thing, Macedonian fake news. Where was that story coming from? BuzzFeed. Yeah. I think Ben Smith made the call and his colleagues made that call, not because, because they were rookies, but because that's what their values and instincts and lawyers and journalists led them to do. I, I, I think that can go either way. Yeah. I think it was a serious decision whether you do agree with it or disagree with it.
3: Anybody up here disagree with BuzzFeed?
1: I, I look. I don't know. I didn't. I yeah, didn't have what it's they tricky. had. tricky. I agree this, with this business BuzzFeed. said everybody had the dossier. I felt a little left out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. And you <laughs>
2: wanted to see it. Either. How did you get to see it? Because of Buzzfeed. I mean, as a journalist, the worst, mm-hmm. one of the worst feelings is being part of a paternalistic. Conspiracy, in effect, to say it's okay for us to all see this and pass it around. Yeah. But we, we have to protect people from this information because but they I can't think, be but trusted. Should we, make, should we
3: make choices based on the idea that Trump's going to use it against us?
1: Well, I don't know. I no, don't. Think well, so. I know a That's I the implication. So. It's given, how you represent given, it? But at any given moment, a lot of investigative reporters know a lot of things that the public either doesn't know or may not may never know because it may not yet be verified. That's the, big, that's the big question. I think it's a very tough call, but I do think it was a serious call. I don't think it was done blithely, um, and I don't think it was done by an unserious uh, organization. I think they've done some uh, amazing things in a very short time. Over to the left side
0: here. Hello, my name is Eric Oriana. I'll try to make this brief. First, please go back to your organizations and make sure that they hire non-white males, um, specifically <laughs> black women queer black women, disabled queer black women, because there is a rate, like, you just go on Twitter, you can find five people like that. (laughs) Um, uh, My second point is about the economics, Um, sort of getting back to what Lydia was mentioning prior. So you have things like Fox, uh, Vox, sorry, um, BuzzFeed. Mm -hmm. I listen to a lot of podcasts. That's how I consume most of my media, right? My mom loves Ryan. That's what she was as a and CNN. That's my,
3: that's my demo. <laughs>
0: well, that
4: a, my mom is really big with the moms. <laughs> Love moms.
0: My mom is 65. I hear a butt coming. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's just different because my mom is 65. She loves CNN. She trusts CNN because, you know, back in the 80s when it started, that's there was the uh, first guys on the scene. And what Jeff Zucker did during the campaign isn't excusable. And I hope you and Jake Tapper and everybody else goes back and says, Yes, we have to make a profit, but do we have to make a profit in this way? When Les, what's his name, Mose from CBS says, yeah, Trump's horrible for the country, but he's good for CBS. That ethos is unacceptable. If you guys are going to be advocates for the polity, you got to tell your bosses, we can't do this. Okay. So I want to get back to the question about the model, because John Oliver did some of the best journalism on... And he's not—he's not here. He's not one of you guys, but he is who my generation now looks towards, right? And I don't mean that to offend you guys. I don't, I'm not saying that to because I love the New Yorker. I love the podcast from that you know that. Uh, I'm not has. offended. I
1: look, John yeah. Oliver's great. Yeah. Here's the problem. You, uh, the unless you wanted it. forty people yeah, on stage. Sorry. Here's the, here here's the thing that we really have to face. I would watch John Oliver completely destroy an issue and, and his and his, <laughs> and his researchers were terrific and it was married to this incredible wit trump won anyway and i think we have to really face this complicated thing that yes he was incredible same thing you know if john stewart had been around he would have been you know all over trump's hairdo and yet really serious currents are happening in the United States. Complicated, ugly, hidden, exposed, and, you know, not any one kind of journalism. And I think this is an important thing when it comes to diversity, and I, and, and I don't disagree with the thing you said, that there are all kinds of journalisms to, to be taken into account here, and they all have to be at their tippity-top best not just John Oliver, but you know, in this country, you know, the Chicago Defender played an enormous role in in its time, especially in its time. The Village Voice in this city at a certain time. Regional newspapers sent uh, scoundrel mayors to jail. A lot of those newspapers have shriveled up and died. Radio stations. When I hear the media. It drives me nuts because that includes, you know, Slate and and Newsmax at the same time. But the thing—the people that do the real work—and there are a lot of them—just uh, have to. They have to buck up. They have to really be better than they ever were. I don't see how it's uh, a lot more complicated than
3: that. I'm going to remember this as the buck up panel. Yeah. <laughs> I already tweeted it. Let's go right here.
8: I don't know. C- c- yes, this I can hear myself, so. Okay, um, so my name is Jessica Sally. I'm a journalism student at NYU also. Um, so I um, am from rural Louisiana, um, which I think, where I think the issues of why people voted for Trump are probably pretty different than they were in somewhere like Michigan or West Virginia. Um, and I think that, like, the, the alternative facts have long been a thing there. Like, four years ago, I remember seeing articles about Barack Obama about to start the white genocide. Like, 12 people from my high school shared these articles as if they were totally real. Um, So I think that these people are, like, a lot of people that I went to high school with are not necessarily even low-information voters, but disinformation voters. Um, So in terms of reaching people in, you know, rural Louisiana who, you know, fundamentally many of the people I, like, know from there, like, would stand up here, right here, and tell you that they think, like, most Muslims are terrorists or something like that. Things that, you know, anything, any if any of us in this room heard it, we would be horrified by. And it's something that has total currency um, in this community. So, what, is there a plan for trying to reach out to these type of voters who, while they were not the tipping point for how Trump got elected, were, uh, you know, a big part of the support that he counted on, or... You know, are they considered a lost cause to fact? I don't. I mean, first I of all, know.
3: white genocide. What a failure, President Obama. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> what a failure. Thanks, Obama. But, but you are raising, yeah. <laughs> but, but you know, you're raising one of the biggest questions of this night, so let's, let's wrap it up with that.
2: Well, I mean, I think you know Jamel Bowie's been making this argument in Slate that the primary factor driving Trump support was racial backlash. You know, Jonathan Shade has this new book uh, called Audacity of Defending Obama's Record, where he points out all these studies that show white voters supported policies unless the, exactly the same policies were described as Obama's policies. They would even support them as Clinton's policies, but they would not support them when they were Obama's policies. But I think a, the, the interesting question is then how you talk about that as a factor, because there, there is a very um, challenging way to do it where you say this is essentially – Racism unacceptable another way to do it. We say this is unconscious and there's a lot of unconscious racial bias and other kinds of bias We deal with in our society and it's just possible that if it's pointed out in the right way People won't be proud of it and they'll they'll want less of it So, you know, it's, it's clear to me that racial backlash is a crucial feature It's not clear to me how conscious that backlash is
3: other thoughts up here about reaching to this what we imagine as this other audience that may not be consuming your publications?
5: Yeah, I, <clears throat> I think that uh, we, we tend to do a connection between reaching and changing people's, people's mind, and I don't think that is necessarily connected. I think uh, media, we have to at- acknowledge that it's not only a, a, a problem of reach that we have, but of impact, no? and that the landscape has changed completely and that we are totally fragmented and maybe we we could reach and everybody's talking about audience engagement and all that kind of stuff but i think the reality is that we lost a lot of the power we used to have no and i think we have to acknowledge also that
4: i i would also just say that the to me the best piece of humor And social commentary before the election was actually not John Oliver or any of these other comedians, but was the Black Jeopardy skit on Saturday Night Live with Tom Hanks. And you know, to me, that skit actually does come back to this, (laughs) this, this notion of you know fellow feeling, as sort of corny as that sounds. Um, The joke is that you know, the, the, the white redneck and the, you know, black ghetto girls are basically hold the same fundamental beliefs about power and their place in society. Um, and you know, only in this fantastical, uh, setup of a fake game show, can you illuminate that commonality? Um, and to me that, that, um, that, that remains a very powerful touchstone. And uh, I think in some ways it's is an inspiration to us all. Um, how do we find journalistic ways to recreate those kinds of moments? Talk about the power of media. David, final thought for us all?
1: Well, I think it's a fantasy that any one media outlet can reach everybody at every level. I, I, I understand why this fantasy is, is now um, so passionate. Um, but, you know, the Daily News reached millions of people, Daily News could also be ugly in its, in its populism. Let's not forget that, whether it was left, right, or center. The, the New York Post is, a, is you know, th- that form is shriveling. Network television can't reach everybody. CNN doesn't reach, no, nothing reaches everybody. And, you know, at, at one time, in the best magazine and in an intellectual level in this country, in the post-war era, was the Partisan Review for a lot of people. It reached 5,000 people. But it had tremendous effect but it didn't have the fantasy of doing everything for everyone. I don't think the New York Times can do everything for everyone, or the New Yorker, or Slade, or, or any television station, or anybody up here. I think you have to do your work honestly and well, increasingly inclus- inclusive in the way that you're talking about, whether it's who you're hiring, where you're sending your reporters to. If, they're, if every dateline is Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco, you're doing something deeply wrong, and I think that's probably... Uh, one of the ills, I think, and this is maybe a tender issue for some people here. I think one of the diversity problems that, a, that, a, that, a, that a, uh, an outlet like mine has is an ideological one. How do I get and speak to and hear from conservative voices or libertarian or not the, the, the usual amen corner that is you know, coming out of my uh, mouth or most of my colleagues? How do you, how do you make that part of that argument? and not just a tribune. I think that's, that's a dilemma that we're, we all should uh, face squarely. I don't mean, you know, welcome, welcome Joe Racist, here you are, <laughs> for, you know, massages, but there, there are different voices here other than the ones that, that maybe are the vast majority in this room. How do you make that part of the, uh, um, the sound and fury of what you're publishing or airing? I think that's important, and, it's, and it should not be political consultants pay to uh issue professional bullshit back and forth on a panel i think we can do better than that
3: i saw a comment from one of our audience members here on twitter uh said i'm feeling a little bit better about this week after being here tonight i hope all of you feel the same way buck up and thank you all (laughs) for uh for speaking tonight
2: That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. Our live show this week was produced by Faith Smith and Kirsten Holtz. Special thanks to our sound engineers Ethan Simon and Jason Gambrell. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. And I'm Jacob Weisberg. We'll be back next week with more Trumpcast.